The Dig is a podcast produced in conjunction with Jacobin Magazine, which you probably figured out by now. And yes, Jacobin is a print publication, not just your favorite source of online commentary, but also long-form serious print journalism and socialist analysis. The magazine is released quarterly, and it runs at around 130 pages, filled with award-winning design and the ideas that movements need to thrive. Dig listeners can join more than 50,000 Jacobin subscribers supporting this vital work for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's very extensive archive online. First-time subscribers only, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin, all lowercase. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash digjacobin, all in lowercase. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. The world we live in today was made possible by the neoliberalization of historically left parties. Why that happened is what sociologist Stephanie Mudge examines in her monumental book, Leftism Reinvented, Western Parties from Socialism to Neoliberalism. It traces the long history of the UK's Labour Party, the Swedish Social Democratic Party, or SAP, the Social Democratic Party of Germany, or SPD, and even our very own United States Democratic Party. To understand why these parties became neoliberalized, however, she first examines how these parties, in all cases but the Democratic Party, founded as thoroughly socialist parties, how they made the switch from socialism to Keynesianism in the mid-20th century. And what she found out might surprise you. The changing position and role of party economic experts, she argues, was critical. And it proved critical again with the shift from Keynesianism to neoliberalism. Mudge writes that the power of these experts was destabilized by economic crises, which put reigning orthodoxies into sudden question. First, the gold standard-bound economic crises of the early 20th century, which culminated in the Great Depression and the rise of fascism. And then, second, the oil shock-fueled stagflation crisis that dominated the 1970s. Each of these crises opened an interpretive battle that saw incumbent experts and their ideologies dethroned. First, the Marxists were displaced by the Keynesians, and then the Keynesians were displaced by a neoliberalized combination of finance experts, wonks, and strategist spin doctors. Mudge argues that we should take very seriously the fact that purveyors of the Third Way, like Bill Clinton, Tony Blair, and Gerhard Schroeder, never described themselves as neoliberal. She writes that there is a, quote, tendency to present what should be a puzzle, namely, why people who oppose neoliberalism, or have never heard of it, might nevertheless act on the world in ways that conform with neoliberal thinking, as a fact— third-wayers are neoliberal, even if they say they're not. Mudge is not saying that we should refrain from calling third-wayers names. 
What she argues is that we can only understand how neoliberalism became so hegemonic by looking at how it came to encompass the leaders of left parties who never, unlike many of their conservative opponents, formally embraced neoliberalism. It is a complex argument that I cannot reprise in full in this intro. Really, I can't even reprise it in full in this interview, but here's the upshot. Neoliberalized left parties turned toward finance and away from labor, severed their connection with their base, and intensified neoliberal globalization, driving voter turnout down and boosting support for the far right. This is the world we live in today, a world where a new generation of leftists has found that neoliberalism has severed the very bonds that make left politics intelligible to people. Rebuilding those relationships will require incredibly deep organizing, something that we have found out we cannot reconstruct from scratch in a single election cycle. Here in the U.S., it is the country that the neoliberalized Democratic Party helped create that made Trump president. It also facilitated the rise of Occupy, Black Lives Matter, the anti-deportation movement, Bernie, DSA, and Sunrise. But even as neoliberalism spun the establishment order into crisis, it had already created conditions within which the left is still unable to win power. Not that Joe Biden will reconcile these contradictions. Right now, liberals are cementing a conventional wisdom that Trump was simply an organic and inevitable racist reaction to a black president. Doing so renders invisible the role played by the Democratic Party since Jimmy Carter in remaking American politics. Most proximately, it renders invisible how Obama's neoliberal response to the 2008 economic crisis, his mass deportations, his forever wars, and more helped make Trump president. This is premised on the facile debate that emerged four years ago and that zombie-like continues today that pits racism against so-called economic anxiety as mutually exclusive causal factors to explain Trump's win. But it's not, of course, racism versus economics, and it never has been. It's about how political economy and empire and so many other forces shape and remobilize racism. Obviously, Trump mobilized racist reaction to Obama. Truly, it's hard to think of anything that could be more obvious. But that's the beginning of an analysis, not its conclusion. We must examine what conditions made that racist mobilization possible. If even George W. Bush can be rehabilitated, we can expect Obama to be canonized. And if that happens, the lessons that Mudge's book contains will not be learned. We must be clear about the role played by the Democratic establishment in making this hell world, or we will be continually doomed to live, and also, as so many Americans are today, to die within it. Oh, one last thing on this interview. I probably butcher some pronunciations of German or Swedish names during this interview. Please try to restrain yourself from sending me an email about it. Thank you. Before we get rolling, if you do like this podcast, consider that it is only available free to all regardless of your ability to pay because those of you who can contribute do so at patreon.com slash the dig. If you have been meaning to make a contribution to support us, please do so now. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash the dig. Also, would you like to discuss some of the books discussed on this show with fellow dig listeners and then discuss those books with their authors? Well, if so, join a Dig book club by visiting 
thedigradio.com slash dig hyphen book hyphen club. That's thedigradio.com slash dig hyphen book hyphen club. Next book up is Resource Radicals, From Petro-Nationalism to Post-Extractivism in Ecuador by DIG Senior Advisor Theo Riofrancos. All right, here is Stephanie Mudge, an economic, political, and historical sociologist and professor of sociology at the University of California, Davis, whose work centers on politics, expertise, democratic representation, and economic government in Western countries. She is the author of Leftism Reinvented, Western Parties from Socialism to Neoliberalism. Stephanie Mudge, welcome to The Dig. Thanks very much. Glad to be here. You write, quote, Insofar as left parties are checks on plutocracy, they are also linchpins of democracy writ large. Is this book that you wrote then not only the history of the neoliberalization and decline of left parties, but also a history of the rise of the far right? Why is the neoliberalization of left parties such an important factor in explaining our world more generally today? So the, the short answer to the question you posed there is, is yes, it is. I do think that it's both an account of the of the neoliberalization and decline of left parties and therefore the rise of the far right. Um, and the reason for that has to do with the sort of specific historical role of left parties in democratic systems as, as the parties that at least make a claim to the representation of people who otherwise lack voice, lack power, lack resources. Um, and I don't just mean their economic power. I mean, also the sort of time and space and what we might call sort of cultural capital that allows people to, to participate meaningfully in democratic processes. So left parties have always, whether or not they've ever lived up to this ideal, which is a separate question, they kind of hold out a special place as the parties that claim to be sort of representatives of people who otherwise wouldn't necessarily have voice or, or would have more difficulty having voice in democratic processes. Which I think is a, you know, it's a makes left parties distinctive with respect to, to right parties, um, especially conservative parties, which aren't necessarily built on the same kinds of claims. And so what that means is if you, if you understand democracy to be something that necessarily for it to be sort of a meaningful way to characterize a political system, then it's not very meaningful if only people who are the best resourced and the wealthiest are the ones who actually have meaningful representation if democracy requires that also the disempowered and less resourced and otherwise marginalized or excluded populations or um, constituencies also have meaningful representation, then you simply have to have left parties or something like them in any kind of meaningful democratic system. So the story of the neoliberalization of left parties, in shorthand, I sometimes characterize it as a story of how left parties came to represent markets as their central constituencies as opposed to, to their historical constituencies, including especially organized labor, but also working people in general and the less powerful and less privileged people. And so if you have left parties that kind of hold out this space in democratic systems for the representation of people who otherwise would lack it, if those entities start speaking first and foremost for the interests of markets, understood as these sort of unterritorial things that operate sort of out there, 
as opposed to speaking for the interests constituencies, then what you have then is this, is this big kind of void in democratic representation. And the way I think about it, what the one of the things that you, the reason that you see the rise of far right parties originating in the same period as the rise of the third ways on the center left. So in the 1980s and 1990s, that that's directly related to this kind of void created by the turn of, of left parties to the representation of markets instead of constituencies. We should pause to define what you mean by left versus right parties, because you call American Democrats, the Swedish Social Democratic Party, or SAP, the German Social Democratic Party, or SPD, and the UK Labour Party, you call them neoliberalized left parties. So what makes these left parties at all, since they are indeed neoliberalized, and since third wares explicitly define their politics as beyond left and right, what do we gain analytically by describing them as neoliberalized left parties rather than merely as parties that were once left that became right or center? So my definition of left and right has to do with where they sit in the electoral landscape in their respective countries, regardless of the positions that they occupy. The way that I think about it is that within any particular national context over the course of the 20th century, regardless of the sort of particular policy positions that left parties took, they were still understood as being main left parties of the major parties in the electoral system and in those countries in public discourse. And so in short, if you define left parties or center-left parties in terms of the sort of standard understanding of a European center-left or social democratic party as as it being there's a party on the one hand and then there's organized labor on the other and they're sort of twinned organizations that work together in the electoral system, then by that definition, the, the U.S. never, ha- it's true, it's never had at least a dominant, right, socialist party or left party. But if you define it in terms of a, of a party where you have on the one hand a sort of party organization which cooperates with or at least claims to represent working people or organized labor, on the one hand, on the other hand, makes investments or has a definite sort of cultural arm, makes investments in knowledge production, so you have a kind of intellectual, uh, a sort of infrastructure for intellectual production paired with the representation of working people and the organizations that represent working people. And that's and then that's kind of comes together in the, in the form of a, a left party. Then the Democratic Party becomes left in the 1930s and the 1940s, not because it has a cultural arm that's invested in socialist knowledge production, but because it has a cultural arm that's linked to the social sciences, among other things. And and especially, I emphasize the deep connection that develops between the sort of New Deal liberal faction of the the Democratic Party and and Keynesian economics. To what extent is is the lack of a, a socialist party in the U.S. in the late 19th and early 20th century related to the U.S. not having a normal party system at all? more generally? So in Western Europe, and this is grounded in the specific sort of history of Western European political development, where parties and sort of democratic institutions develop in opposition, in, in sort of increasing opposition to the to the power of a sort of monarchical or, or aristocratic state, as opposed to the US, which of course was at its founding meant to be a democratic political system. In those two contexts, then what you get in Europe and the parliamentary system are these sort of party organizations that are bureaucratic organizations that have a sort of bureaucratic organizational existence. And they're membership-based parties. They have a definite hierarchy. They have executive committees or sort of you know, top-level positions. And those positions exist whether or not the party's in government. And it's not the case, of course, for American political parties, which were mass parties from the start, except one has to remember that 
the right to vote was much more restricted, of course, in the 19th century and early 20th century than it is now. But in any case, they were mass parties from the start, but they were not centralized bureaucratic organizations operating in a parliamentary system. They didn't have a sort of definite bureaucratic structure. You know, they're kind of loose networks of, of factions, which were compared to their European counterparts, much more kind of anchored on the local and, and state and regional level, rather as opposed to being national organizations. And so given that, you're right. So that one of the things that I say is, well, American party organizations they didn't have the sort of organizational capacity to invest in, in knowledge production or indeed in the production of, of what I call party experts because they weren't these kind of membership-based bureaucratic organizations that had this kind of organizational capacity to, for instance, establish their own theoretical journals or their own party schools, which is what the SPD did in the early 1900s. So they are entirely organizationally different kinds of animals. Um, and I do think that that is an important part of the story of the quote unquote, the absence of a left party or a socialist party in the United States, which again, the reference point for that has always been the European model, right? Which, which has a certain organizational underpinning that just never existed in the American party system. And before we get into the history, I want to pause to ask you to provide a brief overview of the key parts of your argument. You argue that left parties were twice reinvented, first from socialist leftism to economistic leftism, and then from economistic leftism to neoliberalized leftism. And you argue that what was key in these shifts were changes in who party experts were and what party experts did. Why were such a small number of experts so important and what makes it so that parties play such a key role in, quote, the move from ideology to hegemony? Let me put it this way. My interest is is less in the persons themselves and more about what their sort of trajectories into positions of influence inside party networks can tell us about the broader institutional forces that generated these reinventions. So, for instance, in the case of socialist leftism, which is my starting point in the in the European case, not in the Ameri- case of the American Democratic Party for obvious reasons, the sort of institutional or historical conditions that are the sort of basis out of which social democratic parties and labor parties emerge is a world in which there's relatively low education levels. So not very many people have elite university educations. The social sciences exist, especially economics, it exists, but there's but they're not sort of the autonomous, the fully autonomous disciplines that they come to be by the mid-20th century. And so in that first transition that you mentioned from socialist to economistic leftism, What I emphasize is that the starting point for socialist leftism was this particular figure that I call the party theoretician. And what I mean by that is in each of the cases that I look at in Western Europe, there's a sort of figure, especially I focus on ministers of finance or in the British case, chancellors of the exchequer. And what you find is that those folks, they don't have specific training in economics. Many of them have certainly more education, more elite education than is true of the general population, but many of them don't necessarily even have university training. Um, That's the case, for instance, in the case of um, Philip Snowden in the UK. But what they do is they sort of achieve status as intellectuals and as party intellectuals through through journalism and especially through journalistic activities that are connected to, to parties in some way. So the figures themselves, I mean, they are important in their own right because they're very prominent and powerful figures in the context of their respective parties. But what's interesting to me is sort of what are their conditions of possibility, right? What are the institutions and the institutional arrangements that make them possible, that create institutional pathways to the positions that they end up in? 
social democratic parties on the one hand, but also the development of socialist journalist outlets, many of which were were either dependent on party resources or were actually sort of in-house activities operating through the party and funded through the party. And so what I'm interested in by following the figure of the party expert is tracking the sort of institutional transformations that drove these reinventions. So in the case of the party expert, one of the things that's remarkable about them is that the economists, there are folks who are who have the title economist in their time, they are, insofar as they're connected to politics or political organization, they tend to be liberal, as in they're connected to liberal parties. And so there's opposition, actually, at that time between socialist or left party organizations and academic economics. And so with the transition to economistic leftism, the thing that's underpinning that, the institutional transformation that's underpinning that is a newfound relationship, what I characterize as an interdependence between academic economics and center-left parties. And this is true also at this point at the Democratic Party by the time you get into the 1940s and 1950s, that was simply non-existent, right, in the 1920s or before. And so the figure of the expert is sort of like, it's like a, it's sort of like a vector or something, right, that, that gives me a way to kind of see in what I characterize as an inside-out kind of analysis, like by following their trajectory and placing them in context, we can discover the sort of institutional processes that that drove these reinventions. Returning to the, the beginning of the, the story with these socialist theoreticians who played these key roles in socialist left parties, you write that they were far more oriented to the socialist parties than they were to the labor unions that formed those parties mass space, and that in fact it was through the socialist parties that these intellectuals played such a key role in making European labor unions socialist in the first place. And you argue that it's a common misperception that left parties emerged from from labor. Quote, Marx and Engels are partly to blame. They fostered the notion that parties, socialist or not, were the ideological extensions of classes. Ignoring the conditions of his own existence, Marx viewed socialism as a refined, scientific expression of working-class experience. That is, a way of thinking grounded in class, but articulated by intellectuals. In other words, you're sort of uh, pointing out that Marx sort of fails to apply the analysis of, of knowledge as socially situated that he applies to the young Hegelians, to the conditions of his own politics. I guess. Exactly. Um, Exactly. What did Marx miss and how did he miss it by downplaying the role of intellectuals like himself, the very kind of obvious role played by by him, by intellectuals who led the SPD, the Fabians who shaped the British Labor Party? And why was it that journalism was this de facto profession for so many socialist leaders from Marx to Kautsky to Lenin? I want to say first that my argument is not that this, the story of, of social democratic and labor party formation is not a story of the development of labor movements. So my argument isn't that that is incorrect in, in any way. I think that would be, I, I think that would actually be kind of a, a, a silly argument to make for anyone who knows the history of these parties. My argument is just that it's, that it's not the whole story, right? So the thing that I point out in the book is that it's commonly sort of when you read about the history of social democratic movements and social democratic parties, it's common to emphasize the relationship with, with the labor movement for obvious historical reasons. And the labor movement is treated as an actual set of sort of organizations and people, right, doing things and producing stuff. 
And then when there's discussion of socialism, it gets treated as an ideology, as sort of a set of ideas, a way of thinking. So I want to first just kind of correct the the record in terms of my argument, which is not that unions weren't important to do, it was just that socialism wasn't just a way of thinking. It was also a set of organizations and people doing stuff. And so also I want to historicize it a little bit and, and point out that it couldn't be taken for granted, therefore, that socialism would become the sort of intellectual or, or the way Marx understood as a science, a scientific basis. So the labor movement, that alliance had to be forged and that there was a lot of contention in that process. There was nothing about the experience of being a wage laborer that necessarily led you to an analysis that the analysis that Marx provides in Das Kapital. It just, you know, those were two different things. So, so Marx himself and intellectuals like him had to persuade labor movements that their particular line of analysis was indeed an analysis that, that sort of represented their interests or, or was capable of speaking for them. You know, and that took work and it took contention and there were, there were all kinds of rifts and oppositions about whether parties should be sort of worker-led or whether parties should be intellectual-led. This is a very old kind of tension. So if you look at it from Marx's perspective, of course he's going to argue that his perspective is an expression of the experience of working people. Marx was an inconsistent standpoint epistemologist, but but aren't we all? Right, exactly. We are all. <laughs> we all tend to kind of find ways of intellectualizing our positions in a way that legitimates those positions. And I don't think Marx is any exception to that. So I think that downplaying, you could read it as sort of a tactical move, in other words, given the context that he was in, in the, in the effort to kind of form these parties that, that really only existed in his imagination um, at the time that he wrote the Communist Manifesto. So that's my, my answer to the question of why down, he downplayed it. And on the question of, of journalism... It's one of the many things in the book that as I was writing it, it sort of was something I wasn't planning on writing about it, but just, but just became clear that that was the case, that that journalism really was the sort of organizational basis of the sort of socialist intellectual arm or cultural arm of, of social democratic parties in, in their formation period from the 1860s to 1920s. So the question of why journalism, I, I think there are a few different answers to that. One goes back to what I was saying before about a sort of opposition between socialist intellectual production and, you know, people like Marx and the academy. So the developing social sciences, as I said before, were mainly allied, if they were allied with parties at all, or had kind of partisan alliances, they were allied with liberal parties. So part of what's going on there, I think, is that maybe even something similar to recent times, you have in Germany, for instance, a whole bunch of kind of children of the middle class accessing higher education, nothing like the scale now, but but it was increasing then. And then you have these sort of radical, highly educated young intellectuals like Marx, who don't have a place in the academy, whose positions are actually sort of opposed to the academy, who still need to make a living. So you get the development of this sort of radical print journalism, I think partly because you have these new cadres of radical intellectuals who are politically involved, who are, who are trained like Marx in philosophy, among other things. Um, and who don't have an outlet in the academy. And the other thing that is probably an important part of that story is anti-Semitism. Also, the, the important role of political repression. So, for instance, in the German case, there were the anti-socialist laws from, I think, about 1878 to 1890 that were issued by the Prussian government. And part of what the Prussian government did as an explicit part of that effort was they tried to kind of demolish the apparatus of intellectual production that the Social Democratic Party had developed. So they they went in, they took all of their printing presses and things like that to make sure that they couldn't kind of continue in their educational and cultural activities. 
And then what happens then in the wake of that repression is you got you got sort of increasing radicalism and you get this sort of networks of, of international exiles pushed underground and a little bit of, of sponsorship by various wealthy donors. And then they establish things like new socialist theoretical journals that are more explicitly Marxian. And it's actually in that context that the Erfurt program, the first kind of explicitly Marxian in a way that Marx approved of party program of the SPD is written. You know, the other thing is that I think we tend now to sort of see the past in terms of, well, maybe we always tend to see the past in terms of the present. I think one of the things that does, and here I'm influenced, especially by the work of a sociologist named Mario Enforcade, is, is we tend to kind of, when we say economics now, we tend to, we think of a certain set of a certain established academic discipline, and we, and we tend to kind of extend that understanding of what economics was back in time, but that's not actually the case. So the economics and the social sciences weren't really well-developed autonomous professions the way they are now in the 1910s, 1920s. You know, the, the social sciences were around, but they, but in general, they weren't so well-developed and they weren't so influential in, in politics as they were in later decades. And a- another piece of context that I found really interesting is that while liberals were obviously the socialists' rivals, that socialist intellectuals of that era were waging their struggle for working class and union support in a world of, quote, clubs, lecturing societies, and journalism often seeded by liberal elites and associations, which then served as sites of representative struggle between socialists and liberals. Yeah, that also emerged as one of these things that probably wouldn't be a discovery for historians of socialism, but was a discovery for me as I was working out the book. That when you look, for instance, at the sort of original development of the of the German Social Democratic Party or the Swedish Social Democratic Party, what you find is that they are going to these kind of organizations established by liberal parties and um, sort of liberal activists, liberal here, not meaning liberal, of course, in the sort of American New Deal sense, but but liberal in the sort of classic European sense, I guess, of advocating for the expansion of democratic voting rights. And so those associations, which oftentimes, you know, liberals before social democratic parties came along, were involved in the same kind of socialization efforts that figures like Marx and his compatriots also engaged in, which was to try and educate working people to think in a liberal way. And so one of the things that extended out of that was the establishment of all kinds of sort of educational associations and societies and book clubs and things like that, that were meant to be kind of talk shops in which sort of liberal politicians and and activists could kind of engage and try and educate working people who otherwise didn't have much education. And this is prompted by by liberal elite concern over the what was thought of as the social question of the time. This the, 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 right. the, these new dilemmas posed by the rise of industrial capitalism. Exactly. So there's a, there's a lot of concern right about the social consequences of those developments and the liberal solution to that was well education, you know, we have to educate workers so that they can navigate this new world and improve their lot and so that they can also become kind of meaningful participants in the political process. Sounds familiar. <laughs> yep. Right. And so and so they create these organizations and then they would invite, you know, someone like August Babel, you know, to come in and give a lecture. And then they would come in and 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 say, actually this whole liberalism thing is a lie. And so it's really socialism or or specifically Marxian socialism that that gives you a better way of thinking about the world and understanding your your experience. And so they kind of, I mean, there's almost a sort of an invasion, it seems like, right, of some of these organizations established by liberal parties, 
right? And then the UK, the, you know, one of the expressions of that process, you can also see on the level of, of, of the parties, right, with the decline of the Liberal Party and the rise of the Labour Party in its place. Was it because of the important role played by these cosmopolitan bohemian intellectuals that parties like the SPD emphasized intellectualism and culture so much? They created, you write a quote, total environment for their members, an entire mm-hmm. socialist subculture. It's just really remarkable because I don't think intellectualism has ever again been so pervasive in European left parties. Yeah, this is this is uh, something that's just endlessly fascinating to me. The way I think about it is, is sort of grounded in a certain understanding of political parties as, you know, parties parties form for lots of reasons, but one of them is to pursue political power, to pursue political office. Right. And so if we keep in mind that social democratic parties in Europe formed before that was possible, or they started forming before that was possible, right, before they could actually seek political office, before there was enough of an extension of the of voting rights such that it was impossible for them to do that. They were limited in terms of, of what was possible in terms of power seeking and office seeking. And so what they invested in instead was cultivating socialist voters, right, cultivating a socialist culture. And we should remember also this is before their sort of widespread mass education. It's before the development of the modern welfare state. And so one of the ways to sort of cultivate a, a subculture, right, or, or to socialize people is to provide de facto educational institutions and to provide de facto welfareist institutions. And it was a very explicit strategy, right? So that way, when electoral systems made it possible for them to seek office, and they already had a sort of socialized mass movement that, that thought in, in a socialist frames of reference. And it's an incredible achievement if you think about it, if, if, you, if you go to to Europe, or you go to some of the, you know, libraries of socialist, social democratic parties, what you see is that it really is a lifestyle. It's a whole way of living. There was a, there was an idea of how you raised a family in a socialist way. And there were calendars so that you could think of time and the passage of time in a socialist frame of reference. So it was, uh, it was, it was went much further, right, than just, um, you know, questions of this or that economic policy or, working hours or whatever, you know, it was a, it was a lifestyle, it was a way of thinking, and it was explicitly cultivated to be that. And I really think that was, that was foundational to the durability of social democratic politics for the whole 20th century. Where the story got really surprising for me, and as a leftist, rather sad, is that you write that the, the downfall of socialist party theoreticians resulted from their odd dedication to classical orthodox economics and staunch opposition to deficit spending. And it really turns our contemporary understandings of left and right on their head, since Marxists at the time were balanced budget obsessives, fiscal conservatives who opposed heterodox calls to deficit spend that came from inside and outside these parties. What was the economic orthodoxy in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and why were Marxists, of all people, so wedded to it, even as it created a massive crisis for left parties with economic conditions becoming impossible. So the classical orthodoxies at the turn of the 20th century and the early 1900s were very similar to what we might call fiscal conservatism now, right? So you want, especially if if things start taking a downturn, then you want to consolidate your finances, right? So you either cut spending or you raise taxes or some combination of those two things is what we might now call austerity. It's an entirely different sort of economic system because the gold standard system is different than what we have now. 
But the logic that sort of underpinned the gold standard order was very similar to what we would now understand as fiscal conservative, a sort of austerity politics in the context of a crisis or recession. And it is really fascinating that when you look at figures like Rudolf Hilferding, who was broadly recognized as a premier Marxian intellectual or Marxian economist, when they're confronted with the crises of the late 1920s, 1930s, they go back to the same fiscal orthodoxies that we recognize now. And so I think there's a lot going on in there. One of them is that by that time, the, the parties that they are a part of are parties of government. And to break with gold standard orthodoxies meant potentially also breaking with the gold standard itself, which was just sort of outside the bounds of common sense. It was extremely radical and nobody, it was like looking over a cliff and not knowing what was on the other side. You didn't, you didn't really know what was there. And so if you're, if you're a party of government as opposed to a sort of party of agitation and socialization, right, where you're actually in charge, you don't want to be the, the person who sinks the ship. So it is remarkable that in the early, the late 1920s, early 1930s, that Hilferding, a Marxian theoretician in Germany, Frederick Thorsen in Sweden, who is not Marxian um, intellectual, but is certainly a social democratic intellectual and who's the Swedish minister of finance, and Philip Snowden in the UK are all fiscal conservatives. And so I think that you have to relate that to their power positions as, as not, not any longer just sort of socialist agitators, but as actual figures responsible for financial and economic questions in, in government. Nobody breaks with that orthodoxy until the collapse of the gold standard. And the first in the sort of field of center-left parties and social democratic governments, the first party that breaks with those orthodoxies of the cases that I look at is the Swedish social democrats. And the explanation for that is what some sociologists might call the opening up of a vacancy chain. Essentially, the party leadership, both the leading figure, Thorsen, who, who is the sort of default minister of finance, and the head of the party, Branting, both died in 1925. So that creates a, sort of a set of vacancies that the next generation moves into. And one of the figures that moves into that vacancy, into the position of minister of finance or minister of finance in waiting, is Ernst Vigfors in Sweden, who's not trained as an economist, but who has a university education and, and moves in university educated circles, including circles that include economists. So he's kind of versed on, on what's then called the new economics, which in Sweden is its own sort of organic line of economic thinking um, that looks a lot like Keynesianism, but Keynes comes later, which becomes a new orthodoxy, which is that what you do in a recession is not to either raise taxes or cut spending or both, but what you do in a recession is you spend you borrow to spend, and then when you when you kickstart economic growth or you restore economic growth, and you reap the benefits. In case this isn't clear to all listeners, the commitment to orthodoxy in the case of Hilferding in Germany turned out to be world historically disastrous. Yes, and I don't think we can put that entirely just on Hilferding's shoulders. He's kind of symptomatic, maybe, of a broader problem. You know, so the options for a socialist or social democratic party. If they had these these sort of orthodox commitments, they're committed to a way of thinking about the economy that essentially ties their hands so that they cannot respond to the demands of their constituencies. And it is disastrous. It's disastrous also in the UK. It's disastrous for the Labour Party as well. And it creates, you know, all kinds of rifts between the sort of union arm, right, and party leadership, because the party leadership essentially digs in, is unwilling to, and in some cases, they were unwilling to even embrace claims that unemployment was a large-scale problem, no matter how much evidence they, they had to the contrary presented to them by, by their sort of labor arms. 
So it was it was completely disastrous. And in the Swedish case, um, you know, historically, the way the way Thorsten handled handled that was he just said, well, we just have to step down. You know, social democratic parties can't govern in times like this in ways that are consistent with our principles. Wow. Yeah. So so when Keynesianism comes along, right, it's sort of new economic orthodoxy. It's absolutely revolutionary. It unties the hands of social democratic parties such that in bad times they can govern in ways that are consistent with social democratic principles. And you describe this in theoretical terms as a Polanian moment in the 1920s that that put market and human society into a major contradiction. Right. Yeah. So that's a reference to the political economist, amongst other things, Carl Polanyi, who talked about sort of the tensions of the gold standard order and has this you know, famous analysis in this book, The Great Transformations of, of how that leads to um, to near civilizational collapse. So I call it a Polanyian moment kind of in, in his spirit. There's this thing that emerges in the early 1930s where it seems to politicians of the time, especially social democratic or you know labor politicians, you can either save the gold standard order or you can respond to the democratic demands of your constituencies, but you can't do both. And so they had to make a decision. And until, until sort of younger generation economists who were trained in statistical economics and what would later be called Keynesianism, until that they came along, the understanding was it was not an option to sacrifice the gold standard order. You write, quote, all four parties, American Democrats included, converged on a shared language that was non-socialist, strikingly optimistic, and distinctly economistic. And indeed, I think as you referred to near the top of the interview, the Democrats, Keynesian turn, was what made them into a left party for the first time. How did this bedrock understanding that the economy could be scientifically managed to ensure full employment add up to something that you call the Keynesian ethic? And what role did the Keynesian economic theoretician play within reinvented left parties as a result? So in the book, I sort of typify kind of the typical kind of expert sort of bearer these different kinds of left politics across the three periods. And so... Um, so the economist theoreticians, the sort of typical expert that I that I try to characterize as sort of dominant figure by the time you get to the 1950s and early 1960s. And one of the things that I note about them is that they had a certain way of thinking about the economy as a sort of sort of like an engine, you know, something that could it could heat up, it could overheat, you could hit the brakes, you know, something like this engine that that requires sort of engineers, right? Or required mechanics, required, you know, people, in other words, required management. According, and this is really important, according to to the priorities of government. And then this way of thinking about the economy was kind of carried by the person of the economist theoretician. And what, what I emphasize about their sort of institutional location is that, especially by contrast with the party theoretician, is that they have sort of one foot in politics and not just in government, but specifically in political parties, and the other foot in the academy. So they're both academics and kind of recognized as scientific economists on the one hand. And on the other hand, they're also deeply invested in the programmatic development and policymaking decisions of social democratic and center-left parties and, and by extension, center-left and social democratic governments. And so the Keynesian ethic refers to a kind of way of seeing one's role in the political world or in political life in a way that's consistent with this position in between the academy and parties the navigation of that line. So in other words, the Keynesian ethic was a way of kind of seeing one's professional role in public life as being our job is to kind of bring what we know about the science of economic management into 
political decision making, but not in a way that ties the hands of governments or politicians, rather in a way that allows them to kind of weigh strategic trade-offs and make compromises in ways that still allow them to respond to their constituencies. Did left parties' adoption of Keynesianism and the rise of the role of the economist theoretician, did that constitute a move to the right and away from socialism? And, And if so, why, given that the Depression wasn't so much a failure of of socialism so much as the gold standard, something that had been somewhat arbitrarily attached to to socialist economic thinking. Right. So I think it was it was a departure from socialism in a, in, a, in, a, in a specific sense of being a rejection of sort of socialist language and frames of reference. Right. We're not going to talk about capital and the problem of ownership anymore, right? Our political language is not going to be formulated using the sort of language of Marx or of socialist theory. The language we're going to use when we talk about the economy is going to be a technical Keynesian economic language. And so it's why it was characterized by some people at the time as a so-called end of ideology, right? Where where socialist Marxism, even though Marx originally under and and people after him understood it as a as a science, socialism was characterized, Marxism was characterized as ideology as opposed to Keynesian economics, which wasn't ideology, right? It was it was technical. So it was it was certainly a move away from socialism in that specific sense, and it generated discontent. So that you know the most famous example of that is probably the Bad Godesberg program in in Germany of nineteen fifty eight. Right, exactly which was sort of characterized by party discontents at the time as the replacement of, of one ideology with a new one. Instead of socialist goals, uh, quote, as much competition as possible, so much planning as necessary. Right, exactly. And I do think that part of what is going on there is is a move away from, um, you know, as opposed to kind of the socialist party theoreticians who kind of make their way into prominence in the party by having to kind of sell their way of speaking to working people. Part of the complaint at the time of the move toward Keynesianism is that it wasn't so much anymore kind of grounded in a shared way of speaking. It was an elite way of speaking. It was an academic way of speaking. It was a technical and exclusive way of speaking. So that said, I also think, especially if you compare it to now, the ways in which through social democratic government or in the U.S., through government, say, in the JFK years, for instance, the way in which the language of sort of technical Keynesian economics becomes part of sort of general political and popular discourse is really striking. So one of the things that I emphasize about the sort of Keynesian economist theoretician is that because they had to play this dual role, they were kind of strategists and public speakers. They weren't just economists and they weren't just policymakers. You know, so for instance, Walter Heller was sort of famous for his direct communications with the public and his counterpart, Carl Schiller in Germany, was also famous for his kind of communications with the public and also their willingness to communicate directly with and work directly with the leadership of organized labor. So I think to, to the specific answer to your question is that absolutely the move to Keynesianism was a move away from socialism, especially in that specific sense of a kind of conscious, we're going to reject one theoretical language and replace it with another. But there was also a certain, you know, it made it possible for economists and politics at that time to do things that that weren't possible for people who were party theoreticians, for instance, who were kind of really grounded in the party, right? So the fact that the economist could kind of be a politician and be recognized also as an economist, right? And therefore as someone who's objective and not partisan 
it gave them a certain latitude, a certain freedom to do things on the basis of, of scientific and technical claims right? Instead of the basis of just partisanship or just, you know, because they want to, they want to please one constituency and not another. It's remarkable that the same thing happens in all four countries that you're looking at because the conditions in each country are in some ways very particular, like particularly Germany, where the economist theoretician is destroyed as a role under the Third Reich. And you have the economics that emerges from the Nazi era as this highly scientized discipline split in, in two directions, Keynesianism on the one hand, and order liberalism on the other hand, neoliberalism's German cousin, to put it simplistically. And the Christian Democratic Party, or CDU, integrates with order liberalism and the SPD with Keynesianism. How is it that given how different the conditions are, particularly in Germany, but really in every country, that the same thing is happening at around the same time? Right. So that's where my argument about the sort of novelty of the interdependence of academic economics and partisan politics, so not not governments and not government agencies, but party organizations becomes really important. So my argument there in the, in the book is that underpinning the condition of possibility for the existence of the economist theoretician is a, a novel organizational networked relationship between social democratic labor parties and the democratic party in the US and academic economics, which remember in the European case, if you look at the 1920s, that relationship is if anything oppositional. So the reason or you know the argument that would emerge out of the book as the question of why this looks the same everywhere despite these very different institutions is because there's a specific institutional development that's common to all the cases that I deal with, which is this sort of emergent interconnection between academic economics departments and academic economists and center-left political parties, social democratic parties, labor party, the democratic party. So that's really, to me, the sort of institutional underpinning of the emergence of this very similar figure who sees things. And so one of the things I do in the book is I, I do a comparison of the way that Carl Schiller in Germany sort of characterizes the role of the economists in politics and public life with how Walter Heller, in a very different institutional context, characterizes his role. And it's strikingly similar. You know, they, they talk about navigating the line between science and politics, and they talk about the, the necessity of, um, of informing reasoned decision-making and allowing politicians still the freedom to kind of make decisions about strategic trade-offs. Um, and they talk about things in a very similar way. And my argument in the book is that that reflects their very similar institutional position Despite the fact that the countries are very different, the parties are very different, and the history of the parties are very different, the common factor underlying that is this sort of relationship where instead of social democratic parties kind of producing their intellectuals in-house, where they're instead more and more connected to the academy, to the academic social sciences, and specifically to economics. So part of what I emphasize there is that there's a development over time between the sort of 1920s and the 1940s, where as social democratic parties are kind of you know, whereas they're kind of, um, or actually starts even earlier than this, as they're kind of consolidating as as um, as powerful parties that rotate in and out of government, they also start establishing kind of a presence on university campuses, and they start establishing kind of clubs and and ways of recruiting kind of new you know young cohorts of leadership. And so part of what happens there is that as economics departments and social sciences are also developing, that as they have developed this presence, they're also reaching into those departments, right, on the one hand. On the other hand, with all of the sort of crises and instabilities of the 1930s, younger generation economists start becoming concerned about problems of unemployment, 
right? Problems of poverty and things like that, that aren't really concerns of sort of their classical liberal mentors. So the development of those ties, right, such that economics departments kind of produce economists who then track directly into the leadership of political parties, that makes it possible for these very similar kinds of figures to become dominant figures in their respective parties, despite other kinds of institutional differences. One reason that this dynamic was international in the way that it was, you write, is that Keynesianism became the ideology for managing this newly conceived world economy made up of national economies. This was a new idea at the time that emerged after World War II, amid decolonization and the rise of the Cold War. You write, quote, the Keynesian era was significant in part because an academic profession generated guiding metaphors, technical devices, and terminological shortcuts that helped to organize a whole era of modern Western history. In this sense, post-war economics was not merely a technology of government or tool of policymakers. It was constitutive of political life and conceptions of what it meant to govern. Was it this new world order of the time that made the first reinvention of leftism an international one? Yeah. So so there what I'm talking about is that even though we might think of kind of the economy in, in sort of trans-historical and all-like terms, or some people are prone to think of it in that way, that actually the general common sense or sort of ontological understandings of what the economic is have changed pretty dramatically over time. And that's not sort of arbitrary or random. It's It's linked to the organization of political power, basically. And so the sort of liberal orthodoxies of the gold standard period made sense in the context of a period of, of empire, of colonial empire. And then with the decline of colonial empires, and here I'm taking insights especially from Timothy Mitchell, who's done some great work on sort of the emergence of a conception of the economy as a specifically national kind of thing and how that's linked to the formation of, of nation states and, and how they become the sort of dominant political unit in the wake of the decline of, of colonial empires. And so it's in it's only in that world that it starts to make sense to think of economies as specifically national kinds of engines, as specifically national units. And the thing that comes along with that is the capacity to to characterize economies, national economies statistically. Right. So you had to have things like national accounts, which only really came into existence in the wartime period. Also, the sort of technical ability to to describe the economy in a statistical way and describe all the economies of the world as national things in statistical units not only makes sense in a context where the dominant political form is a nation state. So there's kind of a, in other words, there's kind of an ontological argument in the book where the characterization of the gold standard years of the economic world in terms of capitalism, that's a different kind of thing than characterizing the world in terms of a set of national economies that are sort of like engines that can be manipulated, right? Which is very different from the thing that emerges in the 1980s and the 1990s, where the economic world is conceived in terms of markets that are increasingly sort of non-territorial, not as connected to any particular national boundary that are kind of these global things that exist out there. And that whole period has been described as the end of ideology. And for sure, that's how it was dressed up and portrayed. But you write that that was just a reflection of how dominant the ideology had become. And indeed, after these parties all take their neoliberal turns, it was Keynesianism that was tarred as a rigid ideological orthodoxy. And suddenly their partisan attachments become a liability. In retrospect, why was it that the height of Keynesianism the height of the dominance of the economist theoretician 
Why, in retrospect, does that turn out to have been a moment of such great vulnerability? There's this constant tension that underpins the story of the book, which is between that which is characterized as ideology and that which is characterized as science. And ideology in that framing, it's by definition not science, right? And it often means partisan, right? It's linked to the interests of a particular group or a particular movement or, you know, a particular kind of side of the of the political fence. It becomes, especially if you're an economist in politics, like Walter Heller in politics, that flexibility that I was describing before that the economist theoretician had to kind of put on their hat as a scientific economist and therefore be heard as someone who wasn't just speaking in a partisan way that was necessary for their existence, for their ability to do what they did. It was really important. And in that, that discussion I was, I was referring to earlier where I compare Schiller and Heller, where they, they both talk about how important it is that they have the backing of a consensual scientific profession, that that makes it possible. But then if you look at their actual location in the world, what you see is they, they were partisan. They were deeply invested in the fortunes of the political parties with which, to which they were connected. Schiller eventually breaks with the SPD, but before that, they're clearly partisan actors and just in terms of their institutional location, but they are able to kind of act like, like bearers of, of economic, objective economic science in public life, right? And so one of the things that generates one of the stories I try to tell is that both in the political world and in the academic world, there were discontents. There were people who didn't like this kind of marriage of Keynesian economics to specifically the, the parties and governments of the center left who understood that as a sort of dilution or a threat, right, to the scientific standing of the profession as a distraction from the pursuit of discovery of economic truths, right, of scientific truths about the economic world. So there's kind of an opposition that develops, now I'll speak more specifically about the American case, that develops between the Keynesian economists who are doing this kind of moving in between politics and government, so specifically democratic governments and democratic party politics and the, and the academy, there's an opposition between that and, and economists who are strictly academic economists. And here are the story of the Chicago School and people like Milton Friedman is really important, who see that as a sort of socialist economics in disguise. So there's a sort of marriage that I've been talking about or interdependence between Keynesian economics and partisan politics it creates these kind of fractures in economics. And then also in politics, it creates, a, and this is very clear, for instance, in, in, in how Thatcher handles things when she comes into government, where Keynesianism sort of becomes, it's recognized by the political right as an economics of the left, as something that actually, so, so they sort of, so Thatcher comes in and sort of purges the government of Keynesian economists who have been brought in in early years, especially by the Wilson governments. Um, and the same things happen happens in Germany under Kohl. And because of this interdependence that's been established by Keynesians between economics and left parties, ironically, that same interdependence lays the groundwork for neoliberalism to transform both economics and left parties. Right. It makes it possible. So in the 19, one of the ways I explain is that, look, in the 1910s or, the ni- or in 1920, it didn't matter what was happening in economics for left parties the two worlds were not connected in any meaningful way. But by the time you get this interdependence, then it starts to matter a whole lot what's going on in economics because of, because of this fact of interdependence. And so you get, for instance, in the American Academy, instead of that consensual scientific profession that Heller describes, but instead a sort of a fractured profession where eventually un- under the influence of Chicago School, especially, you get a new kind of dominant scientific economics that specifically sort of 
cast Keynesian economists like Heller as not scientific economists, then you created a dynamic that doesn't just change right politics. And we know that, you know, Friedman was an advisor to, to Nixon and all of that, right? But it also changes the whole kind of intellectual infrastructure of left politics as well, of left parties, right? Where if then when you went to appoint the economists to your council of economic advisors or whatever, then you want to appoint the ones with the most sort of intellectual credential, the most academic sort of prestige, right? That they have, they have to have academic recognition. So if, if Keynesian economics becomes sort of, sort of charred and feathered as a, as a non-academic or non-scientific version of economics that's just outdated and there's just new economics in its place, right? It's all about the science of markets. Then you're going to get those economists in left governments, just like you had economists in left governments in the 1950s and 1960s, but they're going to see the world in a very different way. Neoliberals like Milton Friedman didn't just oppose Keynesian economics, you write, but also what you call the Keynesian ethic. And it was the neoliberal ethic, you write, that was at least as important as neoliberal economics. What was this neoliberal ethic and why did the neoliberals' ethical challenge prove so damaging to Keynesianism's standing and to the standing and role of a very particular sort of Keynesian economist that you called an economic theoretician? Right. So just like with the Keynesian ethic, the reason I use ethic to refer to, to the neoliberal period is because, again, I'm talking about sort of the understandings of party experts and at this point, specifically economists, about what their role is in public life. So in the same way that for a Keynesian economist, if you conceive of the economy as this national thing that can and should be kind of manipulated and that can kind of be driven, if you will, in a way that 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 allows left parties to govern according to their priorities, the imagine the sort of neoliberal imagination of the market as this thing out there and it operates according to its own natural laws, right? So it's it's like the sun, it's this thing out there and you don't manipulate it and you can't. And if you try to, it's probably going to backfire. That's a very different way of thinking about the economic world. And the implication of that is that the economist's job in public life is to leave room for markets to operate freely, right? So instead of their job being, well, we, we inform political and policy decision-making with good scientific economic analysis and we offer trade-offs, right? If instead their job is to just, is to just stop politics and policy from interfering in the workings of the market, because that's the only thing that that will produce the best economic results. That's a very different conception of one's role in 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 public life. And so I call it a neoliberal ethic because it's not my, my argument here isn't that and I sort of take issue with the sort of condemnation of figures who themselves have decried neoliberalism or explicitly, you know, describe themselves as being explicitly opposed to neoliberalism, calling them neoliberals because of the policies they espouse or what they actually do, it's a little bit of a distortion. It only works if you're willing to ignore what they actually say about themselves. And it sets aside a really important question, which is how can you have people who understand themselves as people in the American case who are working in this sort of tradition of New Deal liberalism, or in the Swedish case, people who understand themselves to be social democratic political actors who explicitly oppose the logic of neoliberalism or their understanding of neoliberalism, which is especially associated with the governments of Thatcher and Reagan. And yet they still advance policies that are all about freeing up international capital and, and sacrificing wages in order to increase profits. And, you know, all of these things that are totally consistent with the neoliberal understanding of the world. How do you explain that? And so my, my argument about these kind of new kinds of economists is that 
Many of them are social democratic in the European context or sort of labor economists in the British context or democratic economists who understand themselves as sort of liberal leaning in the American context. But they see the economic world in terms of these kind of deterritorialized markets. And the best thing that they can do in public life is, is set those markets free and make other policies kind of conform to the demands of markets. So their role in public life, they understand their role in life is becoming sort of a, it's a limiting role. Their job is to limit the interference of politics and the workings of markets. And so the neoliberal ethic describes their sort of this way of seeing the world and the way in which that translates into a certain understanding of their professional role in public life, which is different from calling them neoliberals, which does, has this problem of distorting or ignoring what they say about themselves. Yeah, you write that there's, quote, a tendency to present what should be a puzzle, namely why people who oppose neoliberalism or have never heard of it might nevertheless act on the world in ways that conform with neoliberal thinking as a fact, third wares are neoliberal, even if they say they're not. Right. So there, it's that's kind of grounded in, in certain sort of epistemological commitments, in, which has to do with the conviction that we should take first-person accounts, actors' own accounts, right, of their motivations and how they see things and why they did things as not necessarily objective truth, but as as their truth, which I think is debatable in the context of sort of political speech, because political speech is kind of its own separate thing. But I do think for, for a question like this, right, a question that's so thorny, because the question of neoliberalism is, is wrapped up with all kinds of politics, with political positions in ways that are totally inseparable, then when it comes to an issue like that, then if academics doing analyses of public life or political life or neoliberalism, don't take the sort of first-person accounts of actors into account, what they end up doing is sort of engaging in what the sociologist Pierre Bourdieu characterizes as the logic of the trial. They end up kind of participating in this political game of blaming as opposed to explaining. So when I talk about in the book figures like Larry Summers, what I'm trying to do there is situate him and people like him of his generation with from similar institutional positions, situate them in time and place and say, well, what is it about the way they saw the world or their experience of the world that made this make sense to them, right? That they could say, I'm progressive or I'm a Democrat or I'm a social Democrat. And also, I think we should set markets free because that's all we can do. The key context for this turn is the 1970s economic crises, particularly stagflation, which combined high unemployment and high inflation and so seemingly, especially if you ignore the role of the oil shock in the whole thing, defied the rules of Keynesianism. But you write, quote, the collapse of Keynesianism did not simply present itself as the self-evident consequence of inflation troubles. It emerged from a series of interpretive struggles in the context of left party economics interdependence. What was the stagflation crisis and how did their two four marginal neoliberals, along with other opponents of Keynesianism, because all of Keynesianism's opponents, you emphasize, were not neoliberals. How did they win these interrelated struggles over interpreting the crisis? Yeah, so the story of stagflation is really interesting. So stagflation, it emerges, it's a term that emerges in the 1960s, actually, in the, in the British context, as a way of characterizing an economic moment that simply made no sense according to Keynesian logic. It was an economic moment in which you get increasing rates of inflation at the same time as increasing rates of unemployment. And the, the Keynesian logic was that you, is that you had one, you couldn't have the other. That was kind of understood as that was the logic of how the economic world worked. And in the 1960s, before the oil shocks, 
a lot of the debate about stagflation has to do actually with the, partly with the sort of over-involvement of Keynesian economists in government in the British case, um, especially in labor governments. And it also has to do, especially in the American case, there was a lot of debate over what they called wage push inflation. Basically, organized labor was too powerful, workers were too powerful, and they were pushing wages too high. So in the 1970s, it takes on a very different, it takes on a very different tone because you get the, the oil price shocks. And what that does is it kicks up prices and you get a new period of what was called stagflation characterized by this, this problem of sort of the dual problem of rising inflation rates and rising rates of unemployment. And then if you look at the debates going on in economics, especially in American economics at this time, it's really interesting because because it's characterized, and I try to kind of track this in the book, it gets characterized by certain academic economists as, well, what this means is that Keynesianism was always wrong. It was always a faulty science, which means that if you if you do things in a sort of Keynesian way as an economist, if you cling to this way of thinking, you're no longer sort of a scientific economist. So in other words, instead of it being read as it was in many political circles, as a problem having to do with, in the American case, dependence on oil in the Middle East, or the general problem of, of energy dependencies inside economics, it was read as a, as a reason to dismiss Keynesian economics, and especially this idea of a trade-off and certain understandings of the, of the role of expectations. So what you get then is, and this is linked to what we were talking about before, the sort of discrediting of Keynesian economists in public life, not just by the political right, but also by academic economists who were not all Milton Friedman, who were not all economists who were allied with, with right parties or with right political actors. There were also economists who were who understood themselves to be sort of democratic progressives. So it isn't that stagflation just kind of walks in the room and everybody, you know, is like clearly Keynesianism is wrong and we're going to have to put Volcker in this fad and let him jack up interest rates. It wasn't nearly that smooth or, or obvious. There were interpretive debates over what it meant there were people in the Carter administration, like the Secretary of Labor and other folks who were saying, look, this is an energy problem, right? This has to do with, with the problem of oil dependence. And that's that's where the problem is. We, you know, we know why prices are going up. And the the response to that, including the Nixon years, was wage and price controls. Right. But in the Carter administration, they kind of and there are figures who who complain about this in their exit interviews. We had, we did wage and price controls, sort of, except they weren't obligatory. We didn't require them. We just said this would be nice. And then we never we never backed that up. So they didn't kind of employ the Keynesian solutions that even Nixon employed. And what they end up doing was little by little, at least Carter sort of accepts the diagnosis that the problem is is something to be resolved by essentially appointing Volcker to the Fed. So my argument is that, you know, stagflation wasn't just this self-evident thing. It was something that was a matter of interpretive contention. And there was the economist interpretation or some economist interpretation that it was a failure of Keynesian economics and Keynesian economic science. Right. But there was also there were other competing interpretations that had nothing to do with that. So this is this is obviously about the price of oil. So the way that it gets interpreted as a reason to kind of reconfigure economics and to sort of rework the orthodoxies of academic economics is a is a contingent historical thing that that for reasons we've been talking about has incredible consequences for the sort of dominant ways of economic thinking inside left and center left circles. One thing that's important here is that I think we tend to think of neoliberalized leftists like Clinton and Tony Blair as having followed right-wing neoliberal governments like Thatcher and Reagan, who kind of invent neoliberal governance and then neoliberalize Democrats, then ratify it, making it hegemonic. But 
Carter's interest rate hike when he puts Paul Volcker in charge of the Fed, which so immiserated American workers, of course, preceded Reagan and helped make sure that Carter would lose to Reagan. And in the UK case, labor leader James Callahan ended up alienating unionized workers and repudiating his party's own economic theories ahead of Thatcher's rise to power. And so you you don't call people like Bill Clinton or Tony Blair neoliberals, but instead more neoliberalized leftists. Why is that distinction important, given that neoliberal colloquially has very much come to mean precisely figures like Clinton and Blair? What does understanding them as bearers of the neoliberal ethic reveal that is obscured when we just call them neoliberals? So to me, the difference is in whether your aim is to engage in the politics of third wayism. That is third wayism, both the Clinton version and the Blair version and its various other versions in other places, all kicked up in labor, social democratic, or in the American context, liberal circles, the question of whether it was a a break or a betrayal. And you see that in the academic literature as, as well, this question of sort of betrayal of principles or history or constituencies. And those questions are important, but to me, those questions are different from the historical explanatory question of what was going on and why. So in other words, on the one hand, one has to acknowledge that the third ways adopted positions and policies that had a neoliberal flavor, right? That they spoke in terms of the market, that they spoke about the market as sort of a dominant force that couldn't be managed or manipulated. They would sometimes talk about the market and sometimes talk about globalization. It was this force bearing down on us that that had to be adapted to. But one should ask why they people adopted those kinds of positions at the same time that they were also expressing their own anti-neoliberal or anti-neoconservative positions. So that's not the same thing as Thatcher announcing that Hayek had defined the new philosophy of Tory conservatism or Reagan giving Milton Friedman pride of place and the medal, the presidential medal of freedom, I think it's called. So that's that's different, right? On the what you get on the center left side or on the third way side is a sort of adoption of some of what we'd recognize now as kind of pro-market neoliberal kinds of positions, but also an insistence that that they're working in the tradition of their parties and in center left traditions in their various countries. So the reason I think the distinction between calling someone a neoliberal versus talking about sort of neoliberalized politics is because I think there's a really, if we want to explain it, if we understand why it happened, then we can't just substitute a label for the sort of complexity of the actual politics underlying it, including the complexity of the perspectives of the people we're talking about. In other words, I think it's perfectly fair to call Reagan and Thatcher neoliberal politicians for good historical reasons, but I don't think that there's the same the same rationale holds for figures like Tony Blair and Bill Clinton. And to me, if we want to understand this historically in a way that that might help us kind of move things forward, then we need to address the explanatory question. We need to acknowledge the differences and we need to understand this sort of disjuncture between what sort of leading figures associated with the third ways said about themselves and what they actually did, right? We need to understand how it made sense to them, in other words, that you could be a social democrat or a labor politician or Clinton would kind of move in between calling himself liberal and progressive. 
how they could say that with as far as I or anyone else as an outsider knows with, with sincerity and also adopt pro-market policies that clearly didn't work in the interests of, of many of their traditional constituencies, even if they said they did, and still understand themselves to be doing something consistent, coherent. I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. Verso just launched a new subscription service for readers to get ebooks and discounts every month. When you become a member of the Verso Book Club, you receive all of Verso's new ebooks every month, as well as one or more new books in the mail, plus 50% off all Verso books as long as you're a subscriber. To celebrate Verso's 50th anniversary, all member tiers are now at a discount of 50%. Choose between three membership tiers. The Verso Reader tier is a digital subscription for every new Verso ebook each month. Verso Subscriber for one book sent to you in the mail every month and all Verso ebooks. And Verso Comrade for two to three books sent to you by mail every month, plus all Verso ebooks. To celebrate Verso's 50th anniversary, each option is 50% off for your first three months. At this momentous time for global politics, Verso will bring you radical voices that challenge capitalism, racism, and patriarchy, debate the future of the planet, and work towards real political change. Sign up for the Verso Book Club at versobooks.com slash book club. That's versobooks.com slash book club. Your book is about four parties in four countries, but I want to drill down a bit more into the neoliberalization of our very own Democrats. The the neoliberalized Democrats, a.k.a. the New Democrats, were organized in a group called the Democratic Leadership Council, and they rose to power alongside Bill Clinton, and they learned lessons you write from the Carter experience, certainly not the lessons I would have learned. What did they determine to be Democrats' problem? And why did they believe that the solution lay in this voter base that they called the mainstream? Right. So one of the things that I do to try to carve a path through that trajectory is I look especially at at one of the founding figures of DLC, which you just mentioned, Al Frum. So DLC was established in 1985. Al Frum had been in the world of Democratic aides and advisors in Congress and connected to various federal agencies for a while. One of those involvements had been he worked on inflation in the Carter years in the Carter White House. And Frum tells his own kind of story in various venues. He's told the story of the experience with inflation. And a few things about it stand out to me. One is that he saw inflation and the Democrats' inability to deal with the problem as a central cause of the decline of middle class support for the Democratic Party or mainstream support. Essentially, it was a failure. And the other thing that you see in his accounts and some other some other people around him is a frustration with the ability of economists 
in the Carter White House to deal with the problem. And that's a frustration you see not only coming from Al Frum, but also from other people in the Carter White House, people like Stuart Eisenstadt, and I've mentioned before the Labor Secretary Marshall, F.A. Marshall, and Carter himself talking about, well, we went to economists to ask about what to do about macroeconomic problems. And Carter says, you ask five economists, and they give you five different answers. And so what they're referring to there is a sort of fractiousness within economics that I've described as an important shift. So one of the things that's going on there, and you can see this in Fromm's trajectory, is a sort of disaffection with economists, uh, a move away from them, and a new search for, for ways of thinking or ways of developing policy positions or strategizing about policy solutions that would be both effective and politically sensitive. In other words, sensitive to the strategic concerns of the Democratic Party. So you can see that in Al Fromm's, I kind of trace his trajectory from the Carter White House back into work um, as a congressional aide and a sort of democratic strategist, and then into the establishment of the DLC, which then becomes a basis for the ascendance of Clinton to the presidency. The other thing that's going on, the other thing they're reacting to is the rise of what's sometimes called new politics liberalism under the democratic tent. And by that, what I mean is after 1968 and the 1970s, the rise of various kinds of what were perceived by folks involved in establishing the DLC as sort of fractious interest groups who represented the interests of particular people, especially women and non-white racial ethnic groups. So there are kind of these new groups that were representative of what they, what they called in democratic circles as sort of new politics groups that they also saw as moving the party in a, in a direction that was detrimental to the party's ability to appeal to what they characterize as the mainstream or middle-class voter. So I should note there that there's obviously a racial aspect to this, right? So the imagination, if you, if you look at the accounts of folks um, who were involved in making a DLC at this time, when they talk about the, the sort of mainstream voter, invariably the figure who gets kind of raised as the sort of model or the embodiment of that is a quote unquote working class white man. So the same constituency, in other words, that became so prominent in the wake of the 2016 presidential election. So there are a lot of things that are feeding into that. So part of what's going on, aside from the concern with sort of the insensitive or not useful policy advice of economists, is also what I describe as, and what other people have described as sort of intra-party sort of factional struggle, where figures like Al Frum and figures around him are worried about the trajectory of the Democratic Party, that it's becoming overly driven by the politics of what they characterize as the fringe. And I should note here that, of course, if, if the fringe is everyone except for a working class white man, then you are talking about a whole <laughs> lot of people. All of these divisive particularities instead of the universal subject of the American white right. middle class. Right. And so what this amounts to, what this leads up to is, is an effort eventually in the 1980s. So they try to work through the DNC. They try to kind of work through the main organizational body of the of the party on a, on a national level. And then they're frustrated with that. And so what they did said is they established the Democratic Leadership Council, the DLC. And they mean it, they meant it to be explicitly a sort of competitor organization with the DNC. And one of the projects that they pursue in the early 1980s in the Reagan years is the shifting of, of power inside the party and especially nominating power away from the, the quote unquote ideologues and interest groups and back toward what they call the electeds. So they mean the office holding Democrats. Superdelegates. Exactly. So this is the creation of the superdelegates. And the idea, a little bit counterintuitively, I think you could argue, is that the way to make the to shift the Democratic Party back into a more representative stance was to shift power away in the nominating process away from 
anyone who wasn't already a sort of establishment elected Democrat. One thing I find confusing is about the role of new politics liberals in this story, because first, beginning in the late 1960s, you have new left and new politics advocates who undercut the power of the New Deal liberal establishment, which included entities like the AFL-CIO. But then the ultimate champions of the neoliberal turn include some new politics veterans like Bill Clinton, but also incorporates, as you mentioned, this kind of neoconservative reaction to new politics and a neoliberal reaction against Keynesianism and organized labor. How did these really disparate forces coalesce to neoliberalize the Democratic Party? It becomes a really difficult story to tell in a way because there are these kind of you know, what, what's really happening in, in through the 1970s and through into the Reagan years is this intense power struggle inside Democratic Party and inside the Democratic networks. And it's not clear what the alignments are going to be. So one of the things that I emphasize in the story of the establishment of the DLC is that it has a very different kind of organizational structure and it has different financial dependencies relative to the closest predecessor that I identify in the book or a sort of comparative counterpoint is the, the ADA, the Americans for Democratic Action. And in that comparison, one of the things I know is that the ADA has a lot, at least initially, especially had a lot of union support. It's heavily depending on union funding. But the DLC is noted at the time for having a lot of support from Wall Street financial donors. And so one of the things that that I think is happening in there is that the DLC, once it's established, it's not kind of clearly anti-union, but it kind of groups union influence or, or democratic politicians who sort of represent union interests as part of the sort of new politics problem, as a, it's, it's sort of yet another interest group. Which is ironic, given how George Meany felt about George McGovern. Right. Yeah. It's There's all kinds of twists and turns in there that are just kind of, when you look at it historically, you're kind of like, what? You know, it's it would have been difficult to, to forecast how this would unfold. So I think what happens there is that basically the DLC doesn't have, it's not union dependent. And in fact, it's it's dependent for funding on on a very different set of donors that also understand themselves as, you know, Democrats and progressives, but they understand themselves as sort of Democrats and progressives who are in opposition to quote unquote sort of old liberals, which sometimes the sort of line between new politics groups and pro-union old liberalism, that, that, that kind of becomes one thing in the perspective of at least some of the um, financial backers of the DLC. And so there's kind of this progression where unions, the AFL-CIO, are, are kind of um, involved, or it looks like they're going to be involved. So, for instance, they're involved in the, in the Hunt Commission, which is the commission that, that is the, responsible for the creation of the superdelegates. So they're kind of involved, but they're marginalized. They're kind of sidelined. The, the result that they get out of that isn't what they want. And then you can see in the DLC's sort of trajectory how it sort of increasingly takes a stance against pro-union democratic politics as part of its whole sort of new thing. In other words, them being the new Democrats, by definition, they were contrasting themselves with old Democrats, which uh, which meant New Deal sort of pro-labor Democrats alongside the new politics Democrats. My other follow-up question is, if Al Fromm and the rest of the DLC was so concerned with political strategy, if the, a lack of political strategy is what they learned 
from the Carter administration. Why didn't they consider the possibility that the Volcker shock drove working class people into Reagan's arms and learned some lessons from that instead? My reading of the very sort of writings and Alfram has a has an autobiography and things like that. I don't think they talk about Volcker and the question of sort of central bank Fed policy too much. I think it was kind of a done deal. And and again, going back to our earlier discussion, of course, Volcker was he was a, you know he was a Carter appointee. He was a sort of you know Democratic Party aligned economist in the tradition of many people before him. And so I think it was taken for granted that that kind of had to be done, right? That that was just it was a. Uh, it was the medicine that the American people had to take. And I think that sort of does bring us back to this sort of market-centered, sort of new neoliberal consensus that, that markets couldn't be governed, that economies couldn't be governed anymore the way they were governed through the, up through the 1960s. I don't think they really call that into question. And, you know, as I note in the book, the, the appointment of Volcker to the Fed, Carter knew what Volcker was going to do, and he knew that it wouldn't play out well for him. And there were people in his in his administration who thought it was a bad idea and continued believing it was a bad idea afterward. But he did it anyway. And I think in some ways that kind of is is symptomatic of the, my argument that the Democratic Party or its sort of leading faction, the Democratic Party and professional economics were deeply interdependent, right? So the conventional or orthodox understanding of, of the economy that had emerged in, in economics or was becoming dominant in economics by the 1980s, I think it was taken for granted in democratic circles. And so then the question is, you know, once that happens, once you kind of set that trade in motion, how do you respond to the demands of your constituencies? So I think that, you know, maybe part of what's going on there, and one of the things I emphasize in the book is that even though Clinton, if you go back to how he spoke during the his election campaigns, um, he, he spoke in the language of economics all the time in his sort of famously wonky way. And he was always citing economists, you know, economists support this and economists support that. He was always kind of making the claim that he had the support of the economics profession. But if you look at his campaign, one of the things you know that you might note in comparison, for instance, with JFK's campaign, is that economists actually weren't nearly or sort of credentialed economists weren't nearly so so important and influential in his campaign as other kinds of figures were. And one of the kinds of figures that becomes influential in the Clinton years and in the Clinton campaign is something that had been in the works for a while, which is the rise of sort of strategic advisors, right? Advisors that were going on polling and focus groups and... People like James Carville, who famously said, it's the economy, stupid. Right, exactly. So Clinton's economic language often came from people who actually weren't actually economists, which is notable by contrast with, with, for instance, JFK's economic language, which was very much a language that he learned directly, basically by training by, by Keynesian economists. So, uh, so one of the things that I note is that, and I think this is symptomatic of this sort of break and disillusionment with economists and economics that's rooted in the Carter years, is that even by the time you get to the DLC in the Clinton years, you get a, a lot of language referencing economists and the economy but actually, if you look at the networks, they're not nearly, economists aren't nearly so prominent and influential, singularly influential as they are in prior years. Their jurisdiction kind of narrows, right? So, so they can speak to matters having to do with, for instance, you know, interest rate policies, and they can speak about matters having to do with international markets and things like that. But their sort of multiple role that I describe in the era of the Keynesian economist theoretician, the, you know, the figures bearing Keynesian ethics that 
where they're kind of strategists and speechwriters and economic advisors, that role gets sort of circumscribed. And that become installed under FDR and remain sort of institutionally intact even during the Eisenhower years through groups like Americans for Democratic Action and then continue on to be at the center of both politics and policymaking for JFK and LBJ. Right. So one of the things I point out in the book is that 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 gives even the Eisenhower administration a little bit of a Keynesian flavor, even though it's a it's a Republican administration. I guess the argument when you get to the third way years is not so much that that economists were no longer influential, just that their role was sort of circumscribed and transformed. And that had a direct connection with the fact that prominent economists saw the world very differently and no longer offered the kind of economic advice that could be reconciled with sort of strategic political demands. And so there's a there's an argument in the book that there's sort of a an affinity or a sort of like functional relationship almost between economists who are advisors in democratic networks or in center-left party networks who see the world in terms of markets and make interventions and policy making processes that are all about sort of securing policies that are market friendly and the rise of what we what comes in the 1990s to be referred to as spin the rise of sort of strategic um, political experts who are all about spinning otherwise unpopular messages in order to win elections that basically one sort of necessitated the other. As a 90s studies obsessive, one point that I found really interesting that you make is that Clinton's election in 1992 was obviously a big win for the DLC. Clinton had been the head of the DLC, but it wasn't the only decisive moment for the party's neoliberalization. Really important was the 1994 Republican Revolution when with Newt Gingrich, Republicans took back the House for the first time in 40 years. Right. Yeah, I think this is something that sometimes folks don't realize that, especially because of the Reagan years, you know, everyone thinks like, well, you know, when Reagan came to power, that was sort of the end for for the Democrats. But but they were actually dominant in the House right up until the Clinton years. You know, it was actually during the Clinton years, Clinton stayed relatively popular, except the voter turnout was going down. And Democratic power in Congress was also, or in the House, was also tanking. It it was a huge conjuncture in this factional fight within the Democratic Party. The DLC said that Republicans had won because Clinton and Democrats were too liberal. Liberals, by contrast, said that it was NAFTA, which, you note, was sold to Clinton not by economists, but by advisors with no economics background. And they, liberals, argued that that had alienated unionized workers and working class voters. What was the balance of power within the party at the beginning of the Clinton administration? Because I think we tend to think of it as having a foregone neoliberal conclusion. But what was the balance of power then? And how did the neoliberalized faction so decisively win out after 94? So I would, my take on it is the balance of power was essentially still, at least on the congressional side, it was still on the side of not the New Democrats, basically, of of sort of liberals and old New Deal pro-labor liberals. And House Democrats in particular were seen as sort of the standard bearers of the liberal faction. And and so in a very kind of overly simplified kind of way, when Clinton enters office, then Clinton himself, you know, he's now kind of remembered as a standard bearer of, you know, American third wayism. But his appeal, actually, if you if you look at the way he was, so he's recruited by the DLC because he's kind of understood as, as, you know, one of the new leading figures of sort of new politics. 
liberalism, and it is still called liberalism at that time. And one of the appeals of Clinton in particular was that they thought he could appeal both to the sort of, you know, old liberals and the new Democrats or the, the folks that the new Democrats wanted to appeal to. And but he could also kind of bridge that with with old liberals in the Clinton administration. And the whole kind of boomer hippie nostalgic infatuation with the saxophone playing cool Bill Clinton, which I recall as a small child. So I would characterize the sort of the first years of the Clinton administration before the arrival of of Gingrich as an administration that in a certain sense had become a power base for the new Democrats and the DLC. But even inside the administration, there were still plenty of people who kind of understood themselves as sort of classic New Deal liberals, you know, working in the in the vein of of FDR, and so there was kind of a there were tensions inside the Clinton White House between those two kinds of groups. So those tensions were expressed, especially in opposition over questions of what to do about balancing the budget and how important was reducing the deficit versus um, versus funding various kinds of programs. And then in Congress, especially in the House, the dominant Democratic forces were still what the DLC would have considered old liberals, who, among other things, were very much Keynesian in in their arguments and understandings about deficits and deficit spending. So when Clinton comes into the White House and brings in this administration, that it it emerges that there's kind of a fracture between the new Democrat folks and the the quote-unquote old liberals. Um, It seems at first, at least the new Democrat folks are kind of worried that maybe the old liberals have still won, that they're going to kind of win out in their influence over Clinton. So there's a series of policy disputes um, that starts off. It starts with a deficit. And then there's a the question of NAFTA that were kind of disputed inside the White House between these two factions where you had people like Robert Reich, right, who was all about not worrying so much about balancing the budget and cutting deficits and instead doing things to help working people versus people like Larry Summers, who was more of a deficit hawk. And then so the, the story that I tell is that actually... In a certain way, when Gingrich comes in to the House with a clear Republican majority, from the perspective of the sort of new Democrats in the White House, that can be leveraged in order to sort of decisively defeat the old liberals. It's a way that they can empower themselves, that they can strengthen their position. And so then I tell the story about how this plays out. And I tell the story, first of all, about how deficit reduction and balanced budgets wins out over things like massive, you know, infrastructure investments and and sort of pro-employment kinds of policies of that nature. And then with NAFTA, initially the way that Clinton kind of sold it to organized labor, especially was that it was going to take account of the demands of labor and that there were also environmental groups. But NAFTA, as as it actually emerged, it did take into account some of the concerns of environmental groups, but it didn't really include the the policies that organized labor wanted. And so that was seen inside the White House as sort of as a sort of new Democrat win. And then you get the Mexican peso crisis and those same folks organize in all sorts of remarkable ways in order to find ways to to bail out Mexico, essentially at a cost of $20 billion. And so progressively, the story I tell is a sort of shifting of power toward the new Democratic faction of the Democratic Party over the course of the Clinton White House, which in a way, the rise of Gingrich and, and the rise of Republicans in the House feed into that, especially because the new Democrats were in favor of the kind of welfare reform that Gingrich advocated, the sort of from welfare to workfare kinds of policies and Clinton's famous claim to, to end welfare as we knew it. That was, a, that was actually a Republican set of policies. But the new Democrats were sort of happy to adopt that because they saw it as something that would kind of cement their power inside the Democratic Party. And so what's the upshot here for 
conventional analyses on the left that neoliberalized Democrats looked to Republicans and then triangulated. And that's how we got the parties moved to the right. Does your analysis comport with that or does it does it complicate that? I mean, in some ways, it tells that story in a different way. You know, what I'm interested in is sort of what's actually underneath that and and how do you get this triangulation? Because triangulation is this term, I think, that's most closely associated with with one of Clinton's most notorious strategic advisors, Dick Morris, <laughs> right? And so Clinton's turn to strategy, and at least if you if you kind of read, you know, sort of insider accounts of the Clinton White House, and especially his turn to this like strategy of triangulation and working with Dick Morris is something that happens after Gingrich and the Republicans take over. And it's a source of frustration for people inside the Clinton administration, especially the sort of old liberals, right, who see Dick Morris as, as being all about strategy, right, as in he's not, he doesn't have any sort of loyalty to New Deal liberalism, or, you know, he's just kind of a pure strategist. And so he's all about spitting things in order to make sure Clinton retains power. And so there's kind of, there's this sort of angsting inside advisory networks inside the Clinton administration about Clinton sort of increasingly consulting with Dick Morris. But I think it's, you know, one of the interesting things is the folks who are most worried about that are the sort of the old liberals. So from the perspective of the new Democrats, that sort of turn to strategy in a way worked in their interests. It was sort of final repudiation of, of New Deal liberalism. So what I want to you know, add to that story of the rise of strategy and triangulation and all of that is that is that what's going on underneath there is a set of factional struggles where you get kind of um, shift inside democratic networks away from not only away from sort of Keynesian economists, but also away from the, you know, the quote unquote fringe, which happens to be, again, a large majority of the voting population and toward sort of this this trinity maybe of advisors in new democratic networks. One of them is a think tank based wonk or policy specialist. One of them are sort of strategic advisors like Dick Morris. And the other one is the TFE or the transnational finance oriented economist who's still sort of a democratic economist, but has a very different way of thinking about the world. And you write that left parties creating think tanks of their own, this dynamic which leads to the rise of the policy wonk, that that was really a response to the success that neoliberals had had in creating free market think tanks. Yeah, so I characterize that in sort of sociological organizational terms as as a case of <laughs> what they would call mimetic isomorphism, just meaning that it's a sort of competitive strategy, an organizational strategy where where new organizations are founded and they copy the successful strategies of existing ones. So not just through professional economics, which is one route through which there's this there's a kind of influence of of what I call the neoliberal project, the sort of intellectual side of neoliberalism. But there's also another route, which is the establishment of free market think tanks, which really start to proliferate in the late 1970s forward, especially 1980s, 1990s. And the, the sort of perceived success of those think tanks, so places like the American Enterprise Institute and the Heritage Foundation in, in the U.S., or the IEA in, in London in the U.K., which is closely connected with the Thatcher years and with Thatcher herself, that the sort of perceived success of these new kinds of organizations, there was a response to that in terms of trying to establish new democratic or labor or more broadly progressive think tanks that where the hope was they would kind of provide resources that that would make for a successful politics and policymaking in the same way the free market think tanks were doing for the neoconservative right. It's a much smaller network, but one of the things I do in the book is I say, look, the 
progressive, the sort of new world of quote unquote progressive think tanks, it's not nearly as, as huge as the network of free market think tanks. And I think probably a lot of the explanation for that has to do with money, but it tracks historically alongside the proliferation of free market think tanks. In other words, you know, they co-evolve, they co-develop. And we've come such a long way. Here we are in 2020 with Neera Tandon heading to the Office of Management right. and Budget. Yeah, so the you know the Center for American Progress is a sort of crowning achievement of the effort to build you know progressive think tanks in in the U.S. You just use the word progressive to define cap, and you write that third wears everywhere adopted the term progressive in part because of the influence from the U.S., where the word socialist was unspeakable. But today in the U.S., progressive typically in its colloquial usage in the New York Times and amongst many people I speak to refers to Warren or Bernie or AOC, sort of a broad swath of the the left word end of the party in specific contrast to a neoliberalized democratic establishment. So the term has always felt slippery and confusing for me, including because of its antecedents in the, the progressive era, which are not things that I particularly want to associate myself with. But your book made me even more confused about its colloquial usage. What what do you make of this term's odd trajectory? So the way I think about things like that is similar actually to how I think about a term like neoliberalism is that in political language anyway, things like that get thrown around as if they are a category that has a sort of stable essence and that stands in for kind of the same thing across time and space, which of course isn't true. What, you know, progressivism, as you've noted, what it means now is different from what it meant to the DLC years and the Clinton years. And that's different from what it meant to, I mean, you know, the language progressivism has been around since the um, turn of the 20th century. So the way I think about the term progressivism and neoliberalism and really any of these isms is that to really understand where they come from and see their trajectory, you have to see them as things that are struggled over. It sort of stakes out a thing to be defined. And then you have a lot of, you have various people and groups that kind of invest themselves and orient themselves toward asserting a winning definition of the term, if that makes sense. When you think about it that way, so that it's not kind of this single essential thing that just kind of travels through time, but rather it's a category that is mainly defined by contestation over its meaning. Then you ask different questions about, okay, so who are the contestants and who's winning? But you're right. One of the things that I that I highlight in the book, and this is a story that is grounded in my kind of knowledge of how the third way sort of internationalized, became a network of sort of international political elites, right, that, that was anchored in um, especially the axis between Blair and Clinton. So Clinton wins in 1992. New Labour kind of builds itself, and not just in certain policy terms, but also it, it borrowed directly political language, and it adopted some of the sort of, sort of strategic machinery of the Clinton campaign and then wins in 1997. And so that becomes this kind of, you know, there's an understanding that kind of emerges that this is kind of the new way forward for central left politics. And they want to draw Clinton into a more international and especially European discussion over prospects for central left politics and the third way. And they can't do that using the category socialism. There's just no way that Clinton could have been involved with something like that. And there's this process then by which the language of progressivism starts to stand in for the language of socialism and social democracy in European politics, the more that the third way becomes this sort of um, transnationalized political network. 
Um, and so there's, you know, there's new events, there's conferences, and it all takes on there in Germany and elsewhere that takes on this language of progressivism. And it becomes sort of almost synonymous with third wayism. So that's one kind of strand of like different networks of people and organizations that are kind of invested in this category of progressivism. But then progressivism now is associated with figures like Elizabeth Warren. So in the U.S., I think right now with the folks who are really winning, right, in their effort to define what the term means is, is much further left than what, you know, Clinton and Blair, and the DLCers would have would have imagined. In other words, these these terms travel. And so the only way that I know to deal with that sort of analytically and historically is to not take it for granted that they have any sort of eternal essence, but rather to treat them as these sort of historical things that are defined and kind of pushed in different directions over time as different groups or networks are able to kind of establish or take take control over the, their definition. We obviously can't do justice to all of your incredible multitudinous book, but for some always helpful comparative perspective, I want to briefly go over some of the neoliberalization of left parties in Europe. In Germany, the SPD's neoliberal turn came when party leader Gerhard Schroeder became chancellor in 1998. The next year, party leader and finance minister Oscar Lafontaine quit in protest of the party's right turn. And what followed was a rapid neoliberalization, including the infamous 2002 Hartz IV law which ended long-term unemployment benefits for German workers. There were huge protests across East Germany. Lefontaine went on to help found the left-wing party Delinka, the left, and the SPD has since that period under Merkel fallen into relative and kind of permanent marginality, even as the far-right AFD, Alternative for Germany Party, has gained so much strength. What why did the SPD shift right when it did? And what have the consequences been? So the story of the SPD is is difficult. And part of the reason that it, it's different from the other cases in the book is because of Germany's place in, um, in European integration, especially market integration. And so, you know, Germany is not only an important driver of the whole integration process, but also um, the it becomes home to the European Central Bank when it's established, I think, in 1999, um, and um, it is as a kind of key player in the in the maker of the euro and the formation of the European monetary integration. And so, basically, the the Ministry of Finance and the central banks and central bankers associated with central banks, the whole sort of authority relationships in those networks shifted so that the ECB, for instance, becomes this sort of superordinate monetary authority, which is staffed, it's leading figures at like every central bank by that time, or many of them, it, it's leading authority figures are not only central bank presidents, but they're also credentialed economists. And they see the world in terms of markets in the way that I've described um, as being the sort of imagination of the TFE. So part of what's happening there is that the sort of balance of power among a sort of economic um, basis of economic and financial policy making shift in Germany in a way that isn't true, for instance, in the UK, which never adopted the euro. And so part of the story is that. But then there's this interesting story about the descendants of Willy Brandt. So Lafontaine and um, Schroeder and another guy named Sharping are... They're known as Brandt's grandchildren. They're kind of the, the next generation or the, the next next generation after Brandt. And, oh, and the other thing I should note is that in the very tumultuous 
late 60s and early 1970s, the SPD pretty effectively shut out its youth wing. They shut out this sort of rebellious radical factions. And so these are LaFontaine, Schroeder, and Sharping are kind of the ones who survived that process, but they're that generation. And LaFontaine and Schroeder, at first, it's kind of understood that that LaFontaine, they, they use the term of modernizer. And, and LaFontaine seems to be sort of the modernizer of the pair. Um, but then it, it becomes clear when Schroeder becomes chancellor that LaFontaine as finance minister is clearly more quote unquote left or he gets kind of cast as old as doing this sort of old economics because he wants to do things like harmonize taxation across Europe and he wants to be able to still have some input. He wants the, the Ministry of Finance to still have some input over interest rate decisions, even though the ECB is then by then in existence and as is the euro. Um, uh, well, it's coming into existence in 1999. And so there's this kind of Schroeder becomes sort of the, the, the internal party split becomes sort of the, the modernizer versus the traditionalists and LaFontaine sort of becomes the traditionalist and Schroeder becomes the sort of embodiment of the modernizer. And then LaFontaine, as he's sort of advocating for these policies that, that are kind of cast as being the policies of, you know, the, the old economic policies that aren't workable anymore, finally resigns in frustration. And it's a major defection. You know, it's an unprecedented defection and very high profile defection that kind of shakes the party a little bit. And it's understood then as kind of, you know, it's a victory um, on Schroeder's side for the modernizers in the same way that there's, you know, sort of victory of the of the new Democrats in the Clinton years. The aftermath of that, what you see in the German case and the SPD cases, as you said, there's the implementation of the Hearts reforms and all the European cases and all the cases also I analyze, I point out that there's um, there's a sort of proactive advancement of the liberalization of finance this is true in Sweden and it's true in the UK and also of the, in the British case, for instance, the freeing up of the, of the central bank of the bank of England to have, and, and by extension, the treasury to have more kind of power over, over interest rate setting amongst other, amongst other things. And so one of the things that happens actually under center left party auspices in Europe is this sort of liberalization of finance that then has the effect of ushering in the very same globalization that third way politicians, the language of globalization in their campaign was this is a force beyond our control. But one of the interesting things then is that they move into power and they actually make that a reality. Thus creating the very sort of political economic architecture that leads to the European debt crisis. Right. They also, with with the advancement of financial liberalization, they open themselves up to, to massive interconnected financial crises. And again, I don't mean this to be a story of blame. I, I, I think it is important to kind of understand the orientations of actors on the ground. Like, for instance, in Gordon Brown's case, I think he really believed that freeing up the Bank of England was the right thing to do and possibly the only thing to do. But the effect of that belief, which was a belief that was very akin to what we understand as neoliberalism, a kind of faith in markets, the more we set markets free, the better off we are. That's the best we can do. To the extent that they believed in that and they acted on that belief in their policymaking, what they did was they ushered in the world that that made the last financial crisis possible. They, they contributed to that process in a really important way. I do want to ask one question about the SAP because they turned towards neoliberalism first, which is surprising to me because we still, I think, think of the Swedish Social Democrats as more left than today's Democratic Party. And you write that more than any country, the Swedish Social Democrats 
neoliberalization was driven by a conflict within the discipline of economics that then shaped a conflict between the party and the Swedish Trade Union Confederation, or LO. And this conflict really crystallized around economist Rudolf Meidner's famous union-backed proposal to create these things called wage earner funds, which I've talked about in the past in the show, that, that would gradually socialize ownership of Swedish corporations. So it's seen by, by many on the left today as this, this moment of one of the last great hopes for a parliamentary road to actual socialism. And you write that it's typically reported that the minor plan failed because there was a huge conservative business mobilization against it. But you argue that, quote, a key background fact to the SAP's break with Meidner from 1976 was the LO economists, that's the union, loss of the backing of the mainstream profession manifested in the open opposition of well-known social democratic economists. How did this conflict over economics and over the Meidner plan in particular ultimately push the SAP toward neoliberalism in the 1980s, a period when the SAP prime minister was Olaf Palma, who before his assassination in 1986, made a point of rhetorically attacking neoliberalism and really is still considered this this lion of the pre-neoliberal European left. One of the things to note about the Swedish case is the incredible power of the Social Democratic Party there for the entire post-war period. So it's it's basically the governing party for pretty much that whole time with, with a few breaks. So one of the things that sets the Swedish case or the Swedish Social Democratic Party apart from the other cases in the 1980s is that they're in government as opposed to right, the UK and the Reagan years in the US, for instance. And the, the other sense in which it's different or special, I think, is that in the literature on the, the history of economics in the Swedish case, one of the things that you'll often see is it's noted that, that Swedish politics is really, quote, economist intensive. In other words, economists from the, and this goes back all the way back to the story of the Stockholm School and the SAP's precocious turn to deficit spending to deal with the problems of the depression. From that time forward, there's a there's an unusually deep intersection, maybe even deeper than any of the cases I, I deal with in the book, between professional economics and the major Swedish political parties. And so when Meidner developed the, the wage earner funds or his plan for the wage earner funds, he was working in a tradition that was well established and that had been incredibly influential in the making of Swedish economic policy and, and matters of economic government. One of the things that I suggest is that what's changed is, is the background sort of position of the LO economists. In other words, trade union economists who sort of managed to play an outsized role in Swedish politics and policymaking, even though they weren't academics. And so because economics is sort of politicized in Sweden, just like it is in other places by the 1980s, there are other Swedish economists or, or social democratic economists who oppose the wage earner funds. In other words, it's very clear and they're very public about it. You know, they do a series of kind of high profile public interventions in major Swedish newspapers and there are debates about it. In other words, so so in some ways you can tell the story of the sort of neoliberalization of the, of the Swedish Social Democratic Party in terms of the sort of factional politics inside the party that really is sort of a, a, a struggle that, that is waged between different kinds of social democratic economists. It's a story that actually in some ways is reminiscent of the story I tell about Hilferding, the sort of opposition between party leadership that 
um, is more um, on the sort of intellectual side of the party versus party leadership. It's more grounded in leadership of the trade unions. Just the institutions are very different. And in both cases, and obviously this is a subjective political assessment, we could argue that it was the people tied to organized labor rather than party intelligentsia who were right. What does that reveal about this problem of the relationship between party intellectuals and organized labor, a problem that has been identified for a long time, as you reference all the way back to Mikkel's famous argument about the iron law of oligarchy. Yeah, so that's this thorny problem that there's to some extent a sort of opposition. Maybe this is actually just all parties or all politics. There's there's potentially a tension between doing things on the basis of principle, and that can include principles grounded in one's intellectual commitments versus strategy, which might involve compromising, probably will involve compromising on one's principles or intellectual commitments. So there's there's a there's a long tension between those two things that takes, I think, an especially profound, it's been especially profound in discussions in the left and, and Marxian scholarship, because the people being represented are groups that are historically not represented or they're less powerful, less resourced. So if the if the principle wins out over sort of strategic willingness to negotiate between groups, including constituencies, then you have a um, then you have a sort of um, untracked you have a very difficult problem. So the thing that I try to that I try to develop, and this is sort of theoretical in the book, is instead of thinking about so this goes back to um, this goes back to the Italian theorist um, Antonio Gramsci where he talks about the organic intellectual. And there what he's really talking about are intellectuals who are kind of grounded in the working class, who have a specific class position. And what I argue in the book is that actually the, you know, what intellectuals do, and this is also something you can find in other parts of Gramsci, um, what intellectuals do in the, in the context of a political party is if they're doing things well, they intermediate. In other words, they kind of move in between party leadership the electeds, the office holders in the language of the new Democrats and constituencies on the ground. And they provide this sort of communicative connection between the two where they're grounded enough in, in represented constituencies that they kind of speak for their experience and help them try to inform their own understanding of their experience and their sort of political identity. But then they can also feed that understanding into policymaking so the way I think about it is that you can have, you always have intellectuals in political life because one of the things that parties, that especially you know, in representative institutions, one of the things that parties do is they speak for people and they aren't just speaking through the voices of people. There's an intellectual process where they're interpreting people's situations and what they want and what's going to work in their interests. There's sort of a translation process that goes on. And that translation can be effective. It can effectively articulate the interests of people, or it can not really represent those groups at all, right? You can have intellectuals who represent markets, for instance, who speak for markets, right? Which are, are not groups of any kind. And those figures don't have the kind of translating communicative intermediary capacity that intellectuals who speak for constituencies do. In other words... If you have, if your kind of key intermediary intellectual and left party networks is an intellectual that speaks for the interests of these non-territorial forces out there called markets, well, then what they're really doing is they're limiting the scope of those parties 
to deal directly with the concerns, experiences, and problems of constituencies. So what you have instead is a sort of pivot where party leadership starts on, on the basis of an acceptance of the necessity of, of representing the interests of markets. Instead of them responding to the demands and needs and experiences of constituencies, they tell them what they're going to need to adapt to in order to keep markets free. So why did neoliberalized left parties turn to wonks and spin doctors instead of realizing that the reason they needed strategists was because their economic policies were not popular and that they were, in fact, eroding their working class base of support? What's the driving cause? I think one of the driving causes that, and this I think underpins a lot of political transformations for the 1980s forward, but it's especially clear on the side of the center left, is is what I sometimes call the sort of autonomization of politics or the democratic political world. And I do talk in the book about the professionalization of politics. In other words, when you move kind of up from FDR to Clinton, what you see is that politicians of Clinton's generation, democratic politicians of Clinton's generation who are moving in, in national political circles, they're moving in this political world that is completely unlike the national political world of the FDR years. And I'm not saying here that one is better or one is worse. I'm simply saying that, that it's different. And one of the major things that's different is the extent to which the world of, of democratic politics is professionalized, right? So there's think tanks and all these different specialized think tanks, and they specialize in producing specific policy recommendations on specific policy questions. And there's a world of political consultants, right, which which doesn't really exist before the 1970s, 1980s, and which becomes incredibly dominant in the world. I mean, the role of political consultants now is impossible to deny. You could even see it if you look at it, if you look at like media coverage, for instance, if you were to, to look at the sort of trajectory of, of presidential debates, the extent to which debates become sort of a spectacle, right? And where the people afterwards who are commenting on who won the debates, it's not kind of just quietly left to the decision of the voters, the watchers out there to decide who wins the debate. You have the representative of this campaign and the, and the consultant to the other campaign and they're debating afterwards. So it's this echo chamber, and I think that, you know, you, you see that in the Clinton years, you see it in the 1990s, and you see it developing in Sweden, you see it developing in Germany, you see it developing in the UK, this sort of professionalized world of politics, where if you're a politician like Tony Blair or Clinton, you're immersed in this sort of world of professionalized politics that's sort of closed off from everything else, and it becomes internally referential. And so they, they, they move in a world where the policy possibilities they consider, the sort of common sense of that world, the language you can use, it becomes very constrained in a certain way. And it's constrained because this world is sort of cut off. Yeah. Like, wh- why didn't it occur to them that like, hey, why do we suddenly need these kind of lying type people to sell our economic policies to people who won't right. like them? I mean, I think, you know, the short answer is these are people like everyone else. And and we tend to, you know, what people do is we interpret the meaning of things according to our sort of immediate experience. You know, we evaluate what's possible and what is unthinkable. Right. According to kind of what makes sense in our worlds and and that kind of enclosed world where the parameters of political discussion, the parameters of policy debate are so narrow and are, are increasingly controlled or increasingly kind of dominated by professionals who are especially who aren't necessarily you know, the world of political consultancies is varied. But but a lot of them, they're not real concerned about the longevity of a particular political party. They're not necessarily concerned about the the success of a party in terms of developing great techniques of, of economic management. Dick Morris being a case in point. Right. They're, they're hired to help the politicians win and stay in power and help them win on certain issues. 
there's basically this whole layer of sort of networks that do all this interpreting of what is possible, a defining of, of mainstream political and policy language, and prioritizing winning over governing the interests of constituents. And what's ironic is that their job is to bridge the gap to voters when, in fact, they're fundamentally part of this machine that is creating the gap between voters and the party. And there's this prevalent idea, including in third wayers own telling, that left party's neoliberal turn was simply following voters to the center. And this is something I think you write that's replicated in the political science notion of the median voter. But you write that this is not at all the case. And you have a lot of data and graphs in your book, a lot. Left party support actually fell after third wayers transformed their parties. Voter turnout also fell. And support for far left and far right third parties rose. And you write in this way, quote, third road policies amounted to the self-sabotage of center left parties that then had to depend on PR to win elections. Neoliberalized left parties said the old model didn't work in a newly globalized economy. But actually, in each case, you write, it was the third wayers who helped create the economic conditions of globalization in particular, that they claimed they were responding to. And while in the U.S. union density did begin to fall in the 1960s, the decline came much later in the U.K. and Germany and never came at all in Sweden. Indeed, you write that Sweden's neoliberal turn came as union density was on the rise. So you argue that indeed the key factor here, a key factor, was this divorce between unions and left parties, but that it was neoliberalizing left parties not external, out-of-their-control, purely economic conditions that drove the process. It was politics. How did this causal or these causal relationships get turned upside down in the conventional wisdom? You know, well, I think, so one of the first things you mentioned was this this idea of the median voter or the center. And this is, this is written all over, like the DLC's concerns with, you know, we have to rebuild our appeal to the middle class or to the mainstream or, you know, and then it turns out, if you look at it now, historically speaking, the sort of rush of center-left parties in the third way years toward the quote-unquote center, there wasn't really anybody there. <laughs> you know, so, you know, this this sort of idea that democratic politics is sort of like a market, this idea of a median voter kind of comes out of a market idea of democratic politics, where the parties or the politicians are suppliers and the voters are demanders and, you know, things work out well, and especially in a two party system, parties will sort of converge on the median position or the quote unquote median voter, which works nicely sort of mathematically and abstractly. <laughs> But in practice, the category as a, as a sort of statistical category, the median voter doesn't really exist in any stable way. That's a sort of figment of the social scientific imagination. And so in a way, it's similar to the substitution of the imagination of the market for the economic interests of people, right? It's substituting this, this category of the median voter for actual voters. An abstraction. Right. And, and then it leaves people to fill in all kinds of things, right? So in the case of the DLC, what's, what is that when they put a face to that abstraction, what's the face? It's, you know, the middle class or working class white man, that's the median voter. It's a term that's sort of untethered, in my opinion, anyway, it's untethered to the actual political realities or the actual interests of voters. And I think it can actually obscure politicians' own kind of understanding of their place in history, of the sort of consequences or implications of the decisions that they've made. 
you know, because they can always say, and, and I've, I've given talks on this book where there are third way folks around and, and they'll still say, but we had no choice. We had no choice. We had no choice, right? That that's their reality. And I can't persuade them that it's not the case. And I'm not sure what good that would do. But I think that, you know, the story, or at least the story that I try to tell is a story of kind of a progressive substituting of abstractions, the median voter, the market, for meaningful two-way communication with voters and constituencies, not for reasons that were totally, it wasn't just a matter, it wasn't a strategic decision to do that. But I think that's what was happening. And so what you get then, and here I've been influenced, especially by the work of the um, political scientist um, Peter Mayer, right? What you, what you get is this void. He has this article called Ruling the Void, where you would get governments and parties that are ruling in the interests of, of a democratic terrain that's basically emptied of people, where you get voter turnout declining and you get declining party membership and you get increasing signs of alienation. It's a politics that is, that is, I think, was damaging in the short term, but it's also damaging in the long term, because once you get these long established parties where people's experience of them is that they less and less speak for you in any meaningful way, you can't come back from that. You can't then come back and say, oh, sorry, you know, now we're, we're actually in favor of investing in infrastructure and domestic manufacturing and we're in favor of unions. And, you know, you can't, you can't come back from that. There's a generational memory there that I don't think you can just people basically you've lost their trust. Is this the backstory then to the collapse of labor's red wall in the 2019 elections or to West Virginia or Minnesota's Iron Range or the Mahoning Valley in in Ohio to their turn towards Republicans? Because in, in the UK case, labor's defeat was blamed on Corbyn being too left wing, but is a more a better way to look at it, a more accurate way to look at it that was in fact Labor's neoliberal turn beginning decades prior that actually laid the groundwork for this historic loss, this neoliberalized severing of labor from its union base that ultimately undermined Corbyn's anti-neoliberal appeal. Because it seems like in the UK and the US that the neoliberalization of left parties has played this key role in remaking the terms of the debate remaking people's political subjectivities, remaking political relationships in such a way that there's no longer an institutionalized mechanism with which union working class based left politics can happen. Yeah, I think what you're talking about with the collapse of labor's red wall in 2019 is that that in 2019, the um, conservatives won places like the Midlands and the North on places that had been for generations, solid labor areas. But the interesting thing, and this is, I think, maybe to some extent specific to the British case, but there's this thing that happens with new labor and afterwards, which is that no matter what happens, no matter what the electoral result is, no matter how labor does, one of the dominant arguments is always that went too far left. Right. And it's, it's, it's like impervious to experience. It doesn't matter if they win, doesn't matter if they lose. The reason is always it's if they win, it's because they went center enough. If they lose, it's because they've gone too far left. And it's just it's always the same kind of logic that that's always the problem. But I mean, I think here part of what's happening is that is that people, when they're making that argument, they're thinking in terms of policy positions. But a lot of what I'm arguing here is it's partly about policy, but it's partly about the extent to which parties are organized in a way and the extent to which people inside parties are situated in a way that they actually communicate with people 
and facilitate communication between parties and the people they they want to represent or or do represent. So there's an argument that could be made that the story of the 2019 result in the UK had to do with the market, the pro-market policies, that basically they they undermined their own base when they when they did that. But I think the argument that I'm making is slightly different is that they they, which is closer to Peter Mayer's really, is that is that what's underlying that is this sort of pulling up of the party's roots and, and a sort of collapsing of its ability to meaningfully communicate with constituencies, right? In the process, what they do is they sort of substitute these imaginaries for constituents. They they substitute the imaginary of the market, they substitute the imaginary of the median voter. And then they end up doing what feels to people on the ground is a sort of bait and switch kind of politics, right? Where they argue with conviction. Tony Blair still does this. You know, we're doing this in response to what the people want. This is what the people want. This is this is the solution. And it'll work in your interests, but it hasn't worked in their interests. And the same thing is true in West Virginia, right? West Virginia used to be a solid blue democratic voting state and especially coal mining coal miners were solid democratic sort of liberal voters and that's collapsed and i think that it's it's not it's partly about policies and policy failures but i think it's partly about this sort of politics of bait and switch they don't trust the democrats even if they say we're pro union even if they say We'll see you through. We'll see you into new opportunities. We'll invest in in new activities that will provide employment opportunities and we'll do training, whatever. They don't believe them. You can't just kind of press a policy button and say the right phrases or the right words or give this right list of policies and get those people back. Yeah, Bernie and Corbyn are fighting against the politics that created this void, but the void is there and it's they're like not audible or credible in that context. Right. And, and I think it's still... I, I still think, and here I'll speak especially about the American case because it's the one I know best, there's still a kind of tone deafness. There's still this idea that if we just press the right buttons, if we say the right thing, if we give the right list of policies, and also in the, in the American case, there's also this idea that if we just, we just wait for the demographics to move in our direction. So the more the electorate becomes increasingly diverse, the more you have non-white voters, then things are just going to move in our direction. As if there's something about being born into the census category Hispanic that means that you are genetically a democratic voter. That's absurd. But there's this idea that the combination of their analysis of demographics and the political leanings that they attribute to certain demographic categories, and then also if they just hit the highlights on certain policy questions, that somehow that's going to reestablish trust and people are going to come back. But that's not, you know, from the ground up, the experience of voters of of democratic politics, it's a whole different thing. It's a relationship. It's a culture. It's a language. It's an identity. It bleeds into all kinds of other things outside of your voting decisions on, on an election day. Well, Stephanie Mudge, thank you very much. Thank you. Stephanie Mudge is a professor of sociology at the University of California, Davis, and the author of Leftism Reinvented, Western Parties from Socialism to Neoliberalism. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the phantoms formed in the human brain are also necessarily sublimates of their material life process, which is empirically verifiable and bound to material premises. 
While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. Same on Facebook. Also, please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever else, please also take a quick moment to rate and review us. Doing so helps introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you making propaganda for us, sharing our episodes on social media or directly with your friends and comrades. Also, do find us on Patreon and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation going. Even a few bucks is huge.